What's up, everybody? What's going on? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, August 6th. My last day at work at Price Industries. Can't believe it, man. Thank you so much, everybody at the team. Warren, Dave, Kyle, you guys are all awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for giving me this opportunity to work with you all. I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, I'm on to the next move. I'll be at Comet ML working, uh, working on some really cool, interesting, fun stuff. Uh, that's going to be happening in about a month. Um, so I'm excited for that, guys. Also, shout out to the fact that as of today, we just crossed 75,000 downloads of the podcast. That's wild to me. That's that's a huge metric for me. I'm really, really excited for, for that. Um, thank you, everybody who's been listening and helping to make that possible. Literally, I couldn't have done it without you guys because it would be very difficult for me to listen to all 171 episodes um, divided by whatever, however hundreds of times I would have to watch you guys each episode. Um, shout out to everybody in the room. What's up? Ken G in the building. David, what's going on? Uh, we got Abe, we got Monica. Good to see you again, Monica. It's been quite a long time. Happy to have you back. Uh, Vin, what's going on? Yeah, Ben Taylor, what's going on? Matt Sharp, how's it going, my friend? Uh, Serge and everybody else, man. Super excited to have you guys here. Um, somebody else also had a transition today. It's David Knickerbocker. David, what's going on, man? Uh, you got you got a uh, some comments here with people uh, interested to hear about your new gig. I am too, man. Um, so how's it feel, man? How's it feel? How, you've been a McAfee for how long? How's it feel to... Uh, to leave after you know how many years it's been it's definitely surreal i've been at mac for six years wow. um and so i made made a lot of friends um but most of my really close friends have already moved on from mac but uh, yeah. but i did have a core group that i was close with so today was pretty difficult saying saying my last goodbyes and whatnot yeah um but you know you gotta you gotta do brave things sometimes so you gotta take a uh, risk man and that's what you're uh, doing man I it's mean, just... pretty it's scary as hell though you know because <laughs> There's no safety net anymore. You know, I'm making yeah. a jump to start my own thing. And so we'll see. Nah, dude, this is it's exciting, man. I'm excited to, to hear about this. If you want to share any details, by all means, uh, let us know what your thing is about. I'm sure we'd all be happy to to hear. But um, but if not, man, like uh, like it, it's been it's my third job in three years. I remember leaving that first job back in the end of 2018. That was like a weight coming off my chest. Like I just hated that place. Uh, and then <laughs> and then my, my second job uh, leaving Bold, I was like genuinely just, bad because i loved my team we had such a good group of friends such a great team um and this is the first time i'm leaving a job and i'm just i'm feeling genuinely like excited like i'm mm -hmm. super super excited for for what's coming next uh as i'm sure you are as well um but yeah man like talk to us about this what's what's new yeah about? yeah so it's it's uh I, i'm not going to go into too much details yet because we're still working on a lot of stuff <laughs> um but but it's a disinformation mitigation company and so we'll be mapping out that kind of malign disinformation, not just like people making mistakes on social media, but bigger than that. And so um, there's going to be a lot of network science involved, a lot of NLP. So all the stuff that you, you guys see me get all excited about, um, I, I get to build a tech stack in my image. And so it's going to be awesome. Um, you know, it's just me and another guy right now. So it's just, we're building the idea the way that we think that we should, and we'll see how well it does. So. Yeah, that's cool, man. It sounds like a really, really awesome, awesome project, man. Um, shout out to everybody watching on LinkedIn and on uh, YouTube and Twitch. If you guys got comments, go ahead and drop them in the chat. We'd be happy to take your comments. Uh, I know a couple of people had some questions queued up. Abe, you had a question that you'd hit me up about a couple of days ago. If we want to go to your question, then we'll go to Russell's question. And then as soon as Mark gets here, we'll get to his question. And in the meantime, if you guys have questions, let us know right there in the chat and I will um, put you in the queue. Did you just say my name? 
Abe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of cut out for a second. Yeah, so hey, everyone, first time speaking. So um, so I just started like uh, my first um, sequel project at work. So I got my big boy pants on. Um, you know, I started working on my first query and it's, um, I, I'm kind of getting some help, but I'm not asking everyone for like the answers. I'm like, Hey, you just point me in the right direction. Um, and I kind of did the step backwards. I like, I started writing a, the query and then I didn't gather all the requirements first. So like, what do you guys recommend for someone that's like doing SQL, like for real at a job to like, you know, how to the, look at the problem or the question and like figure out, all right, what do I need to do to you know get to the final result? Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, my approach would be to figure out the, the the schema as much as possible, see if there's a data dictionary floating around, see if I can get like an ERD or something just so I can conceptualize what is in this abstract database, um, which um, in my experience, that doesn't happen as often as it should. So you have to probably go and ask a lot of questions, uh, connect with people and, uh, pick their brains, these local experts, and stitch together your own web of knowledge. Uh, but Eric, I think you might have been going through something similar, right? Didn't you ask a question about this topic a while ago? What have you learned since then? So so I think your main question was when you're gathering it, how do you just go about getting the right information so that you find you're not kind of like barking up the wrong tree or? Right, yeah. So there's a data dictionary, but there's like thousands of tables because we're it's like I work in like the healthcare like financial part of my school. So we would do the financials for all the clinics. There's like thousands of tables and there's no ERDs, but I'm only going to be working out of like 10 tables. Um, mm -hmm. And then it's just like, you know, so it's just like, I, I go to the data dictionary and then I just try to figure out like, all right, this goes here, I guess. And, you know, I'm just like yeah. making like a cheat sheet for mm -hmm. myself to like, all right, these are the 10 tables that work. I'm going to work with the most. And these are what I'm going to do to um, kind of like the most. Yeah. So like a couple things that kind of come to mind for me. One is, yeah, just ask questions because you're not dumb if you ask the questions of how things are related. Two, you are a blessed man to have a data dictionary. That's fantastic because they don't just, they don't grow on trees. Uh, and then the other thing is I have a, like a little query that just pulls from the information schema. It says like, and I just say, give me the table name and the column name where column name is like, and then I just type in like, I'm looking for something that sounds like revenue. So I just search revenue and it brings up every instance of revenue that might be useful to me. And that's been super helpful. And then the only other little thing I would add is tons of little tiny queries, like show me the, show me top 10. What does it look like? Okay. Show me top 10 again. Now that I changed something, does it, you know, is it, is it working for me? And just like, iterating forward until until i'm getting somewhere bigger and then and then maybe try something a little bigger before finally doing a big query that's going to take longer and that way i avoid wasting time yeah i need that whatever you just said i need that uh, i will it, drop man. it in the chat i can do that i don't yeah. know if you can copy it though crap uh i could share the uh, text file so I that would be great <laughs> Uh, let's hear from Ken on this one. By the way, if you guys did not get a chance to tune into Ken and Ali Miller live on Instagram yesterday, you guys missed out, but you guys are running it back. So we are, yeah. it, let, it let, got let deleted see. on Instagram, which was a huge bummer. Yeah. We had a great combo and then uh, there were some software issues on the, on the way out. But um, yeah, well, I don't know when we're doing it, but we're definitely running it back again. Uh, I, I want to 100% echo what Eric was saying about iterating on things. Something, especially when you're new to a company, I find this a lot with consulting where we have to get up to speed really quickly, is working and iterating in that fashion, but also keeping a kind of running list of questions and asking in batches. 
So rather than like constantly pinging someone on Slack, um, like when you run into things, it's this this list that you're creating. And sometimes you realize as you get further down the iteration process, you're like, oh, I answered that question myself. And so choosing specific points or maybe even setting like a 30 minute meeting, a check-in with someone where, where you can ask a dedicated questions can be really effective. Uh, sometimes even more effective than pinging on Slack. I know everyone wants to get rid of all the meetings on their calendar, uh, but sometimes again, in the early stages of, of getting together with a team or getting uh, getting integrated with an organization, if you're using meetings very systematically and very purposefully, I think that they can they can create a lot of value for you and also you know building a relationship with the other people you work with as well. Thank you very much, Ken. Um, anybody else want to comment on this? I saw some great comments right there in the chat. Um, if anybody wants to. Uh, speak on it just go for it uh if not we can move on um to the next question abe do you feel like your question was answered yeah 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 thank you bro. appreciate it, everyone awesome awesome yeah um cool guys let's keep it moving and we'll so the queue right now is russell mark then we got eric and then jacob um so russell go for it yeah thanks Arpi. uh good evening everybody uh so i've got a i've got a question that's related to to gans deep fakes etc and it's it's kind of a bit of fun but i think there's uh there's a definite um, uh, ethical question behind it. Can you can you guys still hear me? Yeah, we can yes. still hear you. Your video okay, just keeps cool. kind of. No. Yeah, it's a, it's a camera. Sorry, I think it's trying to paint me out of the picture. Maybe it doesn't like my face. I don't know. Um, it was an invisibility gan there, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, so yeah, so recently I've I've had the option to use creator mode on LinkedIn. Um, so I haven't done it for a long time, but I've recently enabled it. And I know you can set the animated video for your um, profile picture. However, most of the ones that I've seen um, just edit from the profile picture to a video. And it's a, it's a really kind of junk edit. You know, it doesn't uh, segue or transition particularly well. So it, it dawned on me that perhaps some of these great um, uh, GANs and deepfake videos. I saw uh, Steve Nuri um, had a great one um, for uh, Morgan Freeman that someone had uh, put out on LinkedIn recently. You guys may have seen it. So I wondered if anyone's considered doing the same for that for their own picture. So to keep their own profile picture, animate their own profile picture and have that picture speak whatever they're going through at the time, uh, just as a kind of an interesting way to make the best use of this new feature in, in LinkedIn. I mean, for me, it'd be good. Uh, you can probably see I've got a, a few gray hairs on my beard now. My profile picture was maybe only 24 months ago. All these gray hairs have come during the COVID lockdown. Uh, but uh, yeah, it would. Uh, I'd still look a little younger if I was to do that. So um, firstly, has anyone considered doing it? And then secondly, if it is possible to do that, what are the ethical implications? You know, we, we're talking about a bit of a fun way of using this, but if that can be done, what else can be done out, you know, uh, in the in the wider media that could could have you know uh, poor ethical repercussions. Ben, go for it. Um, I like this question. Good, Chris. Good, good question, Russell. So, I think I thought about doing it. So, when you go do headshots, like so, I've got my headshot on LinkedIn, and that was I had to go do a session, get a professional photographer. You have to get like a wardrobe. Like it's a process, and so I'd much rather just generate like 10,000 frames from like a very high resolution, like 4K, 8K camera. And then I would just have my GAN that I could then play with, change the expressions. I could also modify the attractiveness. Like I just make myself a little bit more attractive. So not enough that you would call foul, but enough that when you saw me in person, you'd be like, man, he's having an off day. But actually I just like increased my attractiveness 20%. Give the rest of us a chance, Ben, come on. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's, um, is it ethical? I, I don't know. I, I guess you have like models that get touched up today, like post-processing with like Photoshop, like they, and so someone brought that up. There was a debate that someone brought up and they said that this, this could be very toxic because you could act AI making humans look that much more unrealistic in a way that's effortless, but that's already happening with Photoshop. Um, so so if you guys notice that my eye color starts changing to something that's less than human, you might know it's attractiveness going off the rails. I'm trying to go to like future evolution. That's pretty interesting, right? Because I mean, like in real life, like I dye my beard, it's quite patchy white everywhere. And I turned the touch up filter on zoom here a little bit too, to kind of, you know, increase the, uh, the, the. Wait, I, I'm confused. Why would anyone want to de-white their hair? Can someone explain this to me it makes no sense to me if it's Ben's patchy, just starting to look even. better my in my opinion uh, once it's all evenly dispersed i'll reveal it i'll reveal the uh the harpreet the white uh kenji go for it or harpreet the gray which one will be i don't know whichever gandalf so, is cooler so i think the 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 image augmentation for for more attractiveness or whatever it might be that's a really interesting one because I see a future where all of us are speaking through avatars that look similar to us as well. I mean, there's already that capability on iPhone. There's already those types of things. And I don't see like touching up our appearance as being that different from that. I don't see that as much of a, an ethical issue as this being used uh, by someone to impersonate us online or something along those lines. Obviously, that's a lot bigger and a lot scarier thing. Um, my belief is if it... if if you're doing this with your own image or you're having someone's consent uh, to, to use their image and their likeness to create these things, that's totally fine. But once we get into to using things like did that person in uh, in the video from, from Steve Nord, did they get consent from Morgan Friedman to use his face and to use his voice in, in those sense, uh, in, in those use cases, to me, that is that could be really scary. And, and we have some, some good deep fake detection, but it's a cat and mouse game. Like deep fakes are always going to be like iterating and improving, I would think to a certain extent faster than we can keep up with with tracking them. Because the way that these models are built is that like a deep uh, to to generate a, an image or, or like a deep fake, like you're you're using the same tool to validate that it is or to like keep increasing its uh, its efficacy or or its, its accuracy of like this this deep fake model to train the model, right? Like the better the identification models are, the better the deep fakes do, because it is this feedback loop that's created. So to me, I actually like the idea of being able to have an avatar, have an off day, you know, I, my, my hair is like it, it was in the video the other day, and I can just pop on my avatar. It looks very close to me. It doesn't have to be exactly me, but but that way, you know, like I'm in my, my PJs in my meeting, it doesn't matter. Like it looks great. I'm all trimmed up in a suit. Uh, I think that's a, a, a great use case for this. Uh, unfortunately, it does come with those potentially um, nefarious consequences. It, it, attractiveness is actually such an interesting topic. I was going to sneak in real quick that attractiveness. So, so for people that are listening, I've, I've actually done a lot of deep learning analysis on attractiveness just long time ago. Like I was really curious and interested in it. So attractiveness. The Tinder bio. Yeah. <laughs> so attractiveness is not a global standard. And so what that means, if I know I'm speaking in Dublin, I could actually increase my attractiveness in Dublin versus South Africa. Like sometimes we think it's a global Saturn standard because like the Hollywood effect or something, but it, it actually gets, do, do I need to look more familiar to the demographic where I'm traveling to? Like if I'm going to go speak in Croatia or something, like, do I want to, you know, have hints of that in my 
um, avatar. Like that, that would be something that would, it wouldn't be science fiction. It'd be very, I think it'd be very straightforward to give hints of that ancestry in my face in a way that no one's, they just, I show up and they're like, oh man, like you definitely look up. They're not going to let me not speak, but as far as my face, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's funny what technology can allow you to do and ethics it becomes a very gray place to play sometimes. Like sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's, are we allowed to look more attractive online? Like probably. So, you know, it, so I just want to sneak in here kind of yes. about deep fakes and et- ethics. I think it was about a year ago, I showed up uh, a company Zoom meeting with my CTO as an avatar and I gave myself a promotion and a raise and it didn't stick, but I guess that's some ethical boundaries there. That's a good use case too. I like that. The next use case is you show up as your CEO, angry at your CFO for a wire transfer. That's the next. That's the next scenario. I need this wire transfer now, and you yell at them. Yes, that that would be right. Uh, Serge, any good. any comments here? Um, yeah, that that sounds like a, a very very devious use case, but. Um, I wonder where you're going to get enough material of your CEO talking, I guess, from conferences and uh, things like that. If, given that, are you going to record him in meetings? Yeah, where do you get all the training data from? Uh, well, uh, I actually saw there's there's one company that with like 30 seconds of talking, they can produce a pretty good uh, like voice augmentation. I, I can't remember the specific company. I was looking into this for, for a video a while ago, but I was astounded at, at that, the like, um, like the variance in pitch in a very short snippet of talking. It's pretty crazy. I wonder if I could use all of that, uh, all of Ken's YouTube videos for training data, morph myself into Kenji. Would you guys like me better if I was Kenji? If I was Kenji, would you guys like me any better? I don't know. Uh, Vin, any any comments on this? If anybody else has any comments or uh, you know anything they want to add in here, definitely go for it. I think it's interesting when you start talking about the ethical ideas of this, what exactly you know, what's wrong with you changing your appearance and playing with your appearance? And is there going to be a single definition of wrong that everyone's going to agree with? And I think that's the biggest problem that we have with capabilities like deepfakes is you can make a really compelling case for it being a great thing. And you can make a really compelling case for the exact same use case being a bad thing. And so we have these sort of conflicting ideas of ethics that have to be reconciled at some point. And so I think, you know, when you say, is this okay? Is this an appropriate use? You're not in one of those absolute, you know, red flashing lights or, you know, green landing lights areas. And there's so few really ethical areas that are perfectly well understood and everyone agrees on. So I think that's the most interesting thing about what you bring up is, I would bet you the majority of people hearing you talk about that particular use case would have gone, really? There's an, I wouldn't have even thought about that as an ethical problem or there being an ethical problem. And I, I would be willing to bet that if we went, you know, through everybody live stream here, you know, everybody that's watching, someone would have a compelling argument for why that wouldn't be an ethical use. And there's this reconciliation process that we need to have as a field for you know, it's appropriate for 85% or 90, 90% of people, but we have 4% who are heavily impacted in a negative way. And so what do you do then? And I think that's the, that's the bigger implication that's interesting to think about is how do we create a framework 
to number one, accommodate the fact that the majority of people want to use this this way, but also at the same time, protecting a small minority who could be hurt by that application, just the one that you're using. Somehow there's probably a small percentage of people that could be hurt by this. So there's, you know, that's the interesting outcome of conversations like this is we need to have a framework for that. How do we allow uses that are going to be, you know, just from the simplest greed perspective, very economically lucrative and in the vast majority of cases harmless, but we have to also balance every other group and one group will potentially be impacted negatively. This actually ties in nicely because Mark had a question about uh, ethics uh, as well. Russell, do you mind if we kind of pivot from the, you know, Gans topic itself and kind of take the flow of the conversation towards this ethics? Uh, direction, Mark, go for it. You had a you had a question that you had lined up. Yeah, so I, I recently posted an article um, about this company called Spot Shooter, where essentially they use AI to pick up on gunshots and inform the police and help try to reduce crime. Uh, the article I recently released essentially was saying how the police pressured uh, analysts at this company to basically change the data to help them help them with uh, cases to get their desired results. Um, in addition, uh, you know, they did like a third party research uh, kind of as a watchdog uh, where essentially a lot of the gunshots, I think 90% of the time they were, they didn't even classify like gun crimes. Right. Um, and so uh, it begs this question is like, when does AI for me, at least when does AI ethics start? Because that's not necessarily like the model specifically. Um, there's like all these other components in the chain of like ideation and scoping all the way to delivering and, you know, where they're not even technologists and maybe like marketing or sales. Um, Matt has some really great points. I actually agree with, I changed my perspective a little bit on it. Um, but essentially it, it really, the main question I have is like, where do we start the AI ethics process? There's some people who are really like on it more so on the model building. Like, do you classify it correctly? <laughs> As for me, I'm more so thinking, you know, it's everything, every aspect, even the part that's not necessarily AI. So I'm just curious what, what people think about that. Uh, Mark, the yeah. last bit of your question to kind of cut out, but if anybody um, wants to comment. Um... Sure. Yeah, I, I'd say it's, uh, it starts with the data generation process and, and throughout the entire process. I don't think it's like there's, there's like one clear division between, you know, here's where the AI ethicists take over. I think, I mean, it's just a question of having other stakeholders, other professionals that are well aware of the implications involved in the entire process. And that means like dealing with the data provenance, uh, interfacing with stakeholders that could have uh, troubling, like, uh, um, I don't know, like interests um, involving that problem, like you said, in this case, the police. And then also, at the same time, informing, uh, you know, a certain angle to domain knowledge, because there's there's a domain knowledge that's needed to, of course, make the model performant, but there's a different domain knowledge that's needed to make the model fair. And and most case, in many cases, these things they don't really they overlap, but they're not. Of course, one thing is is actually going to be countering the other. You know, uh, you can make the model more performant, and that's going to hurt the fairness. And the fairness is going to hurt the, the, the performance. So I think it just, it, it can't be disentangled. Like this is where you begin and I end. It just, I, I think it's a messy process, which is why I advocate for having like, you know, 
the, the, the platform for AI for the future, I imagine is like a full on cockpit, you know, where like there's all kinds of metrics being measured at the same time. It's not like driven by a, a single metric as it is in many cases right now. And, uh, you know, and there's different eyes on it. It's not just the machine learning engineer, which is kind of the way it is, you know, right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love to hear from from uh, people we haven't heard from yet. So either Monica, Vivian, Ben, uh, even Tom or, or Dave, uh, if you guys want to chime in on this, please let me know. Um, but while I wait for you guys to chime in, I, th I think it, it starts just even before data collect, like, you know, generation process. It just like, is this a thing that we should do with this technology that we have available to us? Is this a problem worth solving? Is this a thing worth building? Okay, if we do build this thing, what are some potential repercussions that are negative? Who, who might it actually be bad for? And think it through that way. Um, that's kind of my perspective. Just start from the beginning. Like, is this something that we should actually be doing with this technology? Um, and and yeah, just echo that, Harpreet. I think I think that's the key thing is you have to have a proactive discussion on potential. You haven't even started the project. Like, what are the potential issues that could happen? If you look in the media, most of the terrible things that have happened with AI, like you had beauty.ai, you had, you know, sexist wrestling models, racist gender classifiers, like you, all these things, they fell into the oops category. They weren't proactive. They didn't sit down and talk about what could go wrong. What are the potential? So I, I like the idea is being proactive, reactive. Don't be reactive. Don't say oops. I guess another thing that keeps on popping up, because I, I, I agree with this, but I was like, who, like, I I personally feel like companies, you know, they have a fiduciary duty just to make money, right? And so that proactive piece, you can make an argument where it's like, yeah, you'll lose money if you get into the oops category, but with the fast iteration, that typically doesn't happen. So like, should we regulate? Um, but, but regulation would decrease innovation and some other countries may not, and they may accelerate innovation so like, I feel like it's a messy balance and I just, I personally don't trust companies to, to make the right decision, um, at a, at a system level. So, yeah. Some things do. Oh, sorry. Someone else was. Yeah. Okay. I'll jump in for a second. So like 20 years ago, when I, when I got into software, we always had to, or we were always told to think carefully about what data that we actually needed to collect from people and only collect the data that you're actually going to use. And so it feels like a while back, we were much stricter with ourselves on this. And maybe it's because we've become greedy in the era of big data where we can collect anything that we want um, and store as much data as we want that kind of those requirements went away and maybe we should get back to that. Um, but I, I like the thoughts that before we build models, it's not very difficult to think whether that model is a good thing to be doing or whether the data is going to be difficult or whether there's ethical implications to even getting that data. Um, so I hope that some of that strictness does come back to software development in the age of big data is what I wanted to throw in there. Yes, let's go to uh, to Ben, then Vin. And if anybody else wants to uh, jump in here, please let me know. Um, raise your hand uh, and I will add you uh, to the list. But so some things do have regulation and protections in place. Like I know for HR, they like they've got the four fifths rule. Like they've got some different things. But the issue is it's not all. It's not totally inclusive, right? Like there there are plenty of biases out there that are not included in that. And then even with those regulations, you run into is this um, is this bias in the wild discoverable? So if it's not discoverable, like you can have a big entity, a big company that has. And this this obviously happens today. Like you have name brand companies that we've all heard of that have rampant bias internally. 
And sometimes that's unknown. Like sometimes it's not malicious. It's not intentional. They're not aware of it. It's, you know, an auditing thing. Um, so I, I think a big part of that's about raising awareness. But when you're working with these companies, they don't want to share that data because it's a legal risk. So it's it's more about that, you know, HR groups and different people having that, in, that awareness that I want to know what my company's doing. Like that, that should be the question that everyone's asking. I want to know what my company's doing. Because if I come knocking to ask what your company's doing, your lawyers aren't going to like that. Go to a Vin, and then after Vin, we'll go to a Ken, Matt, and then Tom, and then if anybody else wants to chime in, please just hit the reaction button, raise your hand. I'd love to hear from everybody. Go for Vin. I'm going to take this meta in 500 you know miles forward from where we are right now, <clears throat> because we're discussing all the easy stuff. We're discussing all the obvious stuff, you know, because companies do oopses, and that's yeah, that's forever a technology problem. But there are malicious actors. There are companies and countries, there are entire regions of the world that don't care, legitimately have no regulation, never will. And even the regulation that they may be putting in place is for some companies and some entities, but not for the government or for other companies. And so we're always going to have bad actors. They are going to build this stuff. It's going to get out into the wild. People are going to be able to use it. Companies will buy it and it will propagate. There's no way to stop that. That's something regulation has failed time and time again at trying to rein in the impacts, especially negative impacts of technology. And so I think we have to start from there and just say, look, this is going to get built. Companies are going to use it. And now we have to create a framework because that's the reality. I think the majority of regulations, the problem with regulation is it assumes that companies are inherently good. No one will build this if we tell them not to. And none of that's really true. So you can't you can't start with that. You basically have to assume we've got criminals out there just like we do with everything else. And this is cybersecurity is the same framework. Assume there are bad actors. Assume that they're out there and we have to create a framework to protect people. That's really where we need to go with this. And the biggest problem that we have with protecting people isn't so much we don't know what's going to happen because you can guess. I mean, you look at hiring, you know there are biased hiring systems out there. You look at credit risk scoring, you know they're there. I mean, you know where the bad and the greatest impact areas are right now. And so we we need to go to those areas and say, look, we have to get a framework that all of us can agree on. And this is the hardest part. Because, you know, if you look at this from a, even like a philosophical standpoint, we've been having this argument for 3,000 years. I mean, Socrates wrote it down. It's the Theros or Eurythro's dilemma, where literally he goes through exactly what we are about to go through with AI ethics. And Jay-Z said it way better, so I don't go through, you know, Two hours, he said, Socrates asked who's biased DLC, because that's where we're at. Whose bias is okay? And can we get consensus on the biases that we all have? That's going to be incredibly hard, especially in a country like America, where our biases go from you know zero to a hundred and everything in between. And we have to come to some sort of consensus. That's going to be the biggest piece of the AI ethics puzzle is until you have a framework that people agree on, you'll continually have bad actors at the fringes who are going to find ways to manipulate any system that we put in place. And so it's almost down to us as practitioners to be the ones who say, look, this, this is how we're going to start policing ourselves to protect 
not to prevent because we can't do that, but to protect people from the impacts of unfair algorithms. And to Ben's point, we can't detect them all. We're not going to know that they're out there, but we can pretty much guess where they are. And so we can be looking in those quote unquote high crime locations. Like you keep an eye on your banks. Why? Because that's where bank thieves want to go get money. And so you want to keep an eye on the communities that have consistently been marginalized, the communities and groups who have consistently been impacted by everything else, because you know that's where the impacts are in the data. And so we have to, as a community, come together and say, look, we are going to keep an eye on these groups because we know where the problems are going to be. And so we're just going to try to protect them. When we talk about framework, uh, just as an example, just so we can conceptualize that is that like framework would be something like uh, when you talk about getting consensus on our bias is that like the bill of rights or the constitution is, is that what you mean by framework or is there some other example it's going to have to be even more granular than that because most of what happens online doesn't get covered by the constitution it, mm-hmm. and it isn't you know the constitution is this wonderful document i love it i'm glad we built a country around it but at the same time it didn't anticipate the planet that we are on right now and it's not a framework that could govern effectively in, you know, we're, we're at the end of nations. We really are. We are coming to the end of nations. And so we have to start understanding that the frameworks we come to an agreement on, this isn't just, I mean, like I said, America is going to be hard. Like if you can get America right, you can pretty much get the rest of the world to work because whatever gets this diverse, a group of opinions to come together and agree will probably, that process of consensus will probably play fairly well across the world. But that process of consensus is beyond our laws right now. It is beyond getting people on social media to follow hashtags. It is far beyond where we have any sort of legal or ethical frameworks that cover. So when I talk about building a framework for what's okay and what isn't, you know, and it was back to what I said very, you know, back on the last question, the legal framework has to allow for things that 85% of the world wants to actually happen while protecting the maybe 1% or half a percent of people who will be impacted negatively by it. So we have to protect them while admitting to the fact that this thing that 85% of the world wants is going to exist. It's going to show up. It will happen. Now we have to protect people. And we can't say, don't do it. I'll throw a billion dollar fine at you because Google will laugh at you. You can throw a billion dollar fine at Facebook. They won't care. It's really a, okay, it's going to happen. Let's protect the people instead of trying to trying to do something that really is impossible and trying to build a framework that's all encompassing. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a lot to think about there. Some excellent points. Um, yeah, to digest that. Uh, Ken, let's hear from you. Then after Ken, uh, Matt, you had your hand up. If you still want to go, let me know. Uh, then after Matt, we go to Tom. Uh, shout out to everybody else that just joined in. Uh, Avery, what's going on? Makiko, what's going on? Greg, what's going on, my friend? Ben, the uh, Seattle data guy, what's going on, man? If any of you guys want to chime in on this discussion, if you guys uh, want to you know, say something, let me know, but just raise your hand and I'll add you to the queue. Uh, Ken, go for it. Yeah, Ben, that was a tough one to follow up. I, I agreed with with everything you said there and you said it so eloquently. I think something that that I really want to highlight, and it, it gets a little muddled in these conversations sometimes, is that like the the models, the algorithms, they're not inherently biased or evil, right? They're just math for the most part, right? What happens is when we when the data goes into them, 
And when we choose a specific dependent value, a variable to evaluate them based on, that's when essentially the bad stuff starts to happen. And so like the data that goes in and what we're trying to predict, those can be looked at almost in isolation of the algorithm. We can say, are these things good to predict? Um, are these things acceptable to collect and analyze? And this then becomes an ethics question more so than an AI ethics question. Like these are all ethics questions. I mean, because it is in the, the machine learning AI domain, that does bring a couple additional wrinkles. I won't completely ignore that fact. But at a high level, even people that aren't associated with the, this domain can understand the challenges that go into these models and come out of these models. Um, and so I think that one, that's a little bit refreshing. Like these things are tools where people can misuse tools. They use them all the time. You can use a hammer to build, build something. You can use a hammer to you know, knock someone uh, over the head. Uh, and if we're viewing it in that frame, uh, although it might be slightly overly simplistic, it can also help us understand how we can set in place the frameworks that Vin was talking about. And so I would hope that that deconstructs these things for people that do have to make decisions around them, that do have to think about these ethical constraints on a daily basis that aren't data scientists, ML engineers, uh, AI researchers, whatever it is. Uh, because to me, that's that's something, this is a problem we can all all start to tackle. And it seems like a lot of the time it's just shoved on the engineers and the data scientists, like you're responsible for making this ethical. No, we that's that's a conversation for all of us to have. Like we might be building this and training it, but this is a lot broader conversation than just what we're doing independently. Yeah, man, absolutely love that. Because like you said, the algorithms, they're just a series of steps. They're just math. They're inherently, you know, without any judgment, bias or emotion or anything like that. It is the human actor at the front end of it that, has the duty, right? The company, the question you're trying to answer, the product you're trying to develop, the thing you're trying to do. Um, yeah, I like that a lot, man. Let's hear from uh, uh, Matt. Are you still here? Yes, yeah. you are, Matt. Yeah, uh, let's go to Matt and then after Matt, Tom, and uh, Monica, you got some good comments in the chat. If you want to uh, chime in on that, I'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah, so I guess what I was just going to say was, uh, you know, slightly different from what was already said, but, uh, you know, essentially kind of echoing a little bit of what was said, you know, like from, from Ken is like, you know, ultimately ethics is really a human problem, right? Like uh, a lot of AI is, again, algorithms and math and, you know, the data you put in and other things like that. But obviously humans still get in the mix in a lot of those problems. And, uh, you know, Mark was talking a little bit. He's like, yeah, I don't trust companies to do it. And it's like, okay, but like, do you trust governments to do it? And, you know, like ultimately I think part of, being at least American is lack of trusting any like authority to get it right. And so, you know, like ultimately, you know, uh, you know, like if, if we do kind of take Ben's advice or like, Hey, let's look into our own company. And like, I think there's just something that, you know, like everyone needs to realize, like there are going to be times when, you know, your AI algorithms, machine learning algorithms are just going to get it wrong. And so I think a large part of the conversation is like, how do we build systems in place to fix these errors? You know, like, I, I mean, this is a problem as age of, as, you know, old, just because like, you know, like even before AI, like just software, you know, like, hey, what happens when Verizon charges you twice as much while well, you call them up, talk to a customer service and get that fixed and hopefully only pay them once. And if you, if they don't fix the charge or pay you more for like fixing the charge or other things like that, then like people get angry. Right. 
And so all of this, again, goes back to the ethics question. And so kind of wrapping in of like, yeah, I think this has to extend out to, you know, the whole human experience and how people experience how, you know, their interactions with machines. Yeah. Like, I mean, what, what's the ethics around? Like, like I feel like the ethics around AI models is it equivalent, the same problems? Is it different from what's the similarities overlaps with the ethics of creating guns and gun ownership and things like that, right? Just one's a tangible thing and one is intangible. It's, yeah, interesting stuff. Tom, let's hear from you and then um, whoever else, Monica, let's hear from you because you got some great comments here in the chat. So um, this is a ocean liner turn circling around back to something Ben said way at the beginning about the proactivity of it. And it reminded me of this friend uh, that I made on LinkedIn that reached out to me. We even had a call. I just entered her name in our chat, Divya Duvetti. She's a lawyer. Uh, they go by a different term out of India. And she was proactively wanting to get involved in AI ethics. And I was so impressed by that, that she wanted to serve companies to get, give them a leg up, a heads up, be more proactive about AI ethics. But the other two things I wanted to point out is um, it seems like it's common for people to flail their arms very quickly. Um, if there's an accusation that there's uh, racism in classification within the algorithms, that can be unfair just because of our technology at times. It, it's uh, quite advanced uh, imaging stuff that can on the fly see uh, differences. I'm trying to use uh, general terminology here. Let's say you've got an image and uh, th there's a certain zone of the shades that it's just hard to distinguish features in that zone. Now, there's some really great improvements, but they're not ubiquitous yet. And it, so that's a type of bias it's, that's caused by technological limits. The other bias is something we could deal with more effectively in the data realm. I think a lot of data scientists, um, or, or I shouldn't put it on data scientists, a lot of data organizations forget to employ the central limit there. Look at your current data set, and then when you bring another new amount of data assets in and, and augment to that, what is what is happening? Track to see if you're approaching the central limit theorem uh, using the tools for that. And then you can at that, but you still have to constantly challenge yourself. Are we broadly sampling enough from the population? In other words, what sectors exist that we're not sampling from? And but these are all ways we can deal with it at a technical level. But I think also it, it shouldn't mean that we don't put some models into production just because we're not sure we've reached the central limit theorem yet or not. We just need to ask ourselves, or, or we need to be honest that, hey, this model could have problems because we're still collecting data. That, those are my thoughts on this. But this, boy, I always typically go silent when we start talking ethics because it's, it's, oh, it's messy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. Monica, did you want to chime in here? Yeah, it's definitely definitely a spicy topic. I, I agree with you there, Tom. Um, this whole thing um, I said in the chat, it reminds me of the healthcare industry with the different technologies that are being used now to analyze and predict certain diseases. So you need to collect data and pictures in order to train your models. And in some cases, that data might not be considered or even treated as PII or PHI. Um, so that could essentially lead to, to a future oops. 
And uh, Russell had asked um, if there was any way to anomalize that data. And I'm sure that there is, but then that could potentially uh, harm your accuracy for your models because you need certain data elements. So for example, like your family history increases your chances to get like certain cancers. So you would need that to help you determine or predict that information. So I think that's an interesting topic. Thank you very much, Monica. Um, so a couple of comments coming in from LinkedIn. Uh, one is from Rodney Beard saying that a lot of old school AI had a much greater engagement with ethical debates than the newer statistically based and function approximation type of stuff, machine learning. A lot of work was done exploring logic and ethics and action theory. The newer machine learning stuff would do well to look at the broader uh, AI literature. I think that's what that says. Uh, Hoyen had uh, a comment and perhaps a question here. Uh, it says algorithms are a series of instructions, but the ultimate bias inherent in them is they are created by humans and whether by error or intent biases come across. How do we keep improving and self-correcting and not just assume this is just tech? How do we ensure people's rights to dignity and privacy are upheld while we go gaga with data? Uh, that is definitely an interesting, I like that comment. I like that question as well. Um, anybody want to speak on that? Um, ben Taylor, go for it. Yeah. Um, and time flies. Look at all this gray. Um, so I was trying to think how long it's been. So six years ago, no, seven years ago at Higherview, we had a team of PhD physicists that were building models that we, the data was biased. You know, there were sexism, racism, ageism. It's guaranteed. It's unconscious bias. And we were coming up with techniques to actively remove adverse impact. So can we take a model to predict a performance out, output on a candidate, but also remove the bias that transfers um, racism, sexism, et cetera. So seven years ago, we were making a lot of progress, a ton of progress. So I presented to the EEOC. We went into detail about what we're doing. Pymetrics was a big uh, pioneer there as well. They're doing similar developments. And for the person that mentioned like looking into classical algorithms and, and techniques that were used, we looked into all those techniques and higher view sense have gone, they've gone much they've gotten much further past that. So I think I've mentioned on this on this group before is one of the best ways to mitigate it is you build all you build models that compete. You build a model that predicts the thing you wanted to predict. You build a model that predicts all the things you're the most worried about. And something magical happens is you figure out the features that are driving the bias transfer. And so the classical example would be in a resume name, fraternity, sorority, college, where you're in school, like all that stuff gets nuked immediately. No human expert had to come through and mark that up. AI was very quickly able to figure out these are the features I'm killing because what is it, what is it, what is it doing? It's going to poison the model that's able to transfer race. It's going to poison the model that's able to transfer gender and biases. So um so sometimes I get a little frustrated when people kind of talk about what are we going to do or you know the world's ending. We can't make progress. We are making lots of progress, but not everyone's making progress. Like some people are still at stage zero. They don't need to be the, the thing I mentioned anyone on this call can go do it. Go build two models. And you'll kill the features on the one that transfers race. Is that a, would that be the again? That sounds like again to me. It, you could do it with most models. Like if you use some of the classical models, it's a little bit more straightforward. If you're using some of the more exotic tree-based models, then um, really feature, feature removal is the big thing. If I have 10 features in a, a competency-based model, I can't really throw features away. But if you're dealing with a resume, if you're dealing with these more exotic data sets, it's easy to have 10,000 features. So if I tell you I'm going to go throw a thousand features away, words and mentions and different attributes, um, you can use any model you want. You pick, 
pick your favorite model and I'm just throwing features away. And that's a huge win for people that are concerned about bias. Actually, this this conversation is very relevant. There's a current um, thread on LinkedIn right now where uh, an article is called LinkedIn's job matching AI was biased, the company solution, more AI. And someone from LinkedIn is actually commenting on this article, asking this individual who's, you know, just dumping on them, you know, hey, we want to help. Like, and I think that's the unfortunate thing. The, the last thing I'll say is like, sometimes companies make mistakes. Like they, they're honestly trying and they will make mistakes. And it's unfortunate that we burn them at the stake as fast as we can. Because here's this poor like LinkedIn engineer saying, we would love to hear your opinions. And, and, and people say, this is terrible. These algorithms aren't up for audit. They're not up for audit because you burn them at the stake the moment you find anything wrong rather than us working together. How great it'd be if we were so transparent. This is what we're trying. What do you think? Instead of just like, you messed up. Um, yeah. It's too bad. But I guess this goes into like, why are we so politicized, divided? Like, it's just a general human behavior beyond this. This is a bigger discussion. Yeah. I have a follow up question for Ben for that. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like, you know, uh, the big movers, like the, the, the companies who have way to change the needle, do you have, do you feel like they have the will to, to want to work, to want to fix this? Are they doing enough to say, look, we know this is a, a problem. We're willing to, you know, fix it and create transparency uh, to fix this, right? Do you see enough movement there? It's that's tricky. Cause I'm, I'm thinking of like the whole Timnit thing, like they're, that's super complicated. Like it's, it's just a, it's a mess because if you're, if you're talking about things that are antagonistic towards the money-making portion of the business, that is problematic from a capitalistic perspective. So it's, um, do the bigger companies have what it takes? Um, I think they're doing useful research. I'm, I'm not familiar with all the research that they're doing, but I look at companies like Pymetrics. Like Pymetrics has been a thought leader in adverse impact mitigation. They're very, uh, their CEO is very outspoken about it. Um, I mostly the innovation coming from not the bigger companies when it comes to ethics. But I, but Greg, I, I I worry sometimes that maybe the bigger companies they have massive targets on them, like. How often do they get burned at the stake on a regular basis? And how nice would it be as a community if, hey, you you guys screwed up. Here's a bunch of professors coming from MIT and Stanford that specialize in this. We'd like to work together. Um, yeah, it humans are so funny that way. Like I'm the most negative things we could talk about with human behavior. Like why are we acting like this? I could also say this is why we're so good at innovating. You know, like if Greg and I get in like this fierce competition on innovation, one of us is going to win. That's not a very nice teamwork thing to do. And so they, these things that are more emotional and negative with human spirit, they also lead. There's other flavors of them that lead to this competitive innovation. Um, like the hero's journey. Like why the hell would a human like climb over a mountain to die to see what's on the other side? That doesn't make any sense. But like here we are as humans. Like. Sorry, I, I'm speaking too long, but just real, just real quick, Heartbreak, you and I are both lovers of the six stats, right? Yes. It's like organizations need to have a blue hat data scientist, full time blue hat data scientist watching for this kind of crap, not just this kind of crap, but also one that goes around and says, hey, what dirty data problems have you had? We'll go try to fix them at the source. Because when you're in the trenches, you're working on your stuff, you don't have time always to get up out of your chair and go say, hey, I'm worried about an ethic issue here. I'm worried about a dirty data source issue here, et cetera. It'd be so nice if there was a blue hat data scientist in every group. So blue hat of the six thinking hats, uh, definitely check that out. Blue hat is the, the thinking hat, right? Um, and that's Thinking the, about the thinking. Thinking, the meta thinking. about what mode everyone's in, yes. Yeah, control hat, organized thinking itself, sets focus, calls, 
for the use of other hats, monitors, and reflects on the thinking process used. Good hat to wear. Vin, let's hear from you. And then um, if anybody else wants to speak on this, definitely let me know by raising your hand. Uh, but after Vin, if nobody else wants to speak on this topic, we'll go to Eric's question, who has a question about sampling, which ties back to something Tom was talking about or might even fit in here. Uh, then Jacob has a question about data engineering, and I know exactly who I'm going to call on for that question. Uh, then Deponshu has, uh, has some questions as well. Also, shout out to everybody else that joined. Mikiko, what's going on? Rodney Beard, Matt Diamond. Uh, good to see you guys here. Ben, go for it. I'm just going to, I've worked in the same space that Ben did, and the problem with many, many approaches, and I'm not burning anybody at the stake, but this is really indicative of, okay, when do you stop? Because that's the biggest question with AI ethics is when, do you, when does your accountability stop? When you look at a resume, nothing in that resume is a causal feature for employee performance. Nothing. It, because it's a collection of words and it's an ugly collection of words. But we can make some best guesses, right? We can all agree that if you read a resume, you can make a best guess on whether somebody's qualified and worth bringing in. But if you really go down the rabbit hole, you begin to realize that people who have been impacted by discrimination their entire career write resumes differently. They don't highlight their skills the same way as people who have been supported their entire career. And so you get to the point where if you really run down the rabbit hole, how far do you go? Do you build another classifier specifically for resumes that are written differently? And this is where I talk about that 4%. You know, because 85% of the people, that model that, you know, the companies Ben's been pointing out, 85% of the people that model works amazingly for, but it continues to impact a small percentage of people who don't write resumes as well, but are as capable. Why don't they write resumes? Well, because the system that was there from time memoriam, it isn't the AI's fault. And it's not the data scientist's fault either, but that system has changed the way they write resumes. And it does. They don't write resumes the same way. They aren't as confident about a particular capability, even though their skill level with that capability could be exactly the same as someone else who has not experienced that level of discrimination. And so the bar for them to write confidently about it on their resume is higher because of that prior impact. Now, where does our accountability, knowing that, because you can run down the, the rabbit hole and figure it out, knowing that we're as data scientists where does our accountability end? Do we have to mitigate that? Ben, thank you very much. Uh, it's been such a good discussion, man. Um, definitely one to uh, to listen back on. Um, doesn't look like anybody else has anything to say on this topic. If you do, please let me know by all means. I, just, I was just going to respond 23 yeah, seconds please. to Ben. So Ben brings up an, an excellent point that um, people write resumes differently and that can have a negative impact. I, I think the resume should die and go away. And it should be replaced with job simulations, which is problematic in itself. But like, you know, we're all data scientists. If you can put you through like a coding challenge that is practical, it's scored in real time, or like even enter a VR, AR simulation. Like we already do that for call centers. Like for some simple jobs, you can go through a job simulation. But as we, that that would be like the holy grail. Like, can you do the job? And I don't care about your background. Oh, you flunked out of school. Can you do the job? Like so many people could do, like I work in marketing, like, fantastic people could work in marketing who've dropped out of college, but unfortunately they don't have that line in their resume. Right. Thank you, Ben. Um, anybody else? A lot of good stuff, a lot of good stuff going on in the, in the chat as well. Um, but I, I think we'll just keep, it, keep the conversation moving just to get to everyone's questions. Um, so let's go to Eric's question about sampling, but um, great, great discussions in the, in the chat. And you could figure out what's going on in the chat. If you join us every week, 
go for it. Already in the chat. Yes. <clears throat> all right. So I probably have like the lamest question of the night, especially compared to all the previous discussion. Whew. So, uh, so uh, this is just a little thing. I'm looking at data where I'm trying to see what proportion of this big old, you know, several thousand rows of data. So it's it's not unbelievably huge, but it's too huge for me to like go through and check and see how many of these might be, might not meet a condition. And it's an on or an off. It's just a proportion thing. And I'm trying to think, okay, so if I have, let's just say 10,000, if I have 10,000 and I'm looking for a proportion and I think the proportion is small, like maybe 1%, I don't know how many I need to look at before I can say I'm confident of that. And I've kind of tried to Google it and I know like I haven't been able to find something that like I can think through with my, you know, Thursday or Friday adult brain to make sure I'm actually considering the right stuff. So that's, that's basically my question is like, what am I missing? Let's go to, to Tom for this one. Cause um, Tom, you're actually talking about this earlier. So go for it. Um, Eric, my dear buddy, I was a bit yes, distracted. Tom, with my dear white haired friend. <laughs> Can you, it's actually dark here, it's Zoom that's turning it white, but would you repeat your question because I was slightly distracted? Yeah, I was just saying I have a, I have a big set of data and I need to find out uh, what the proportion of them is that are, we'll just say failing instead of passing. And I think it's a small percentage, like maybe one percentage or 1% and trying to think, how do I know what my sample size is? It's like data science 101. I just have been stuck on it. So... Would this imply, is this a classification problem? Um, no, I'm it's just trying to do a test to, to see what proportion of, um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what it is that you're asking. Yeah. If, if I need to, so if I have, 10, let's say, if I have 10,000 rows of stuff yeah. and it's not yeah. easy, I can't just like do a pivot table to show me passes or fails. Um, yeah. And so I need to see what proportion of them are failures. And I don't want to look through all 10,000 of them to get my percentage. So how many do I need to look through before I can say fairly confidently, ah, it's 1%. How do you qualify what's a failure is what I think we're missing. Uh, Let's see here. Is it a label value? is Is it your label column or what you think should be your label column and it says pass or fail? So what it is right now is I'm looking at, I'm looking at, let's see here. I'm looking at like entity names and then I'm trying, and then I'm looking at some other related field to that, like just another entity, but sometimes there might be duplicates and sometimes they might not actually be a duplicate. Like it might be two people who like two people who both work for the same company, or it might be two, two different people who work for two different companies that have the same name. And I have to figure out, like looking at them, this is something I have to do. I have to eyeball it and make a judgment call as a human being um, based on the other data that I have, which is why I can't just program an answer. Yeah, it sounds like it's a form of dirty data. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, kind of, okay. yeah. And there's not enough information to discern if, Maybe these two identical names are two different people because you don't have enough information. I have I have enough information, but like like if if there's two Eric Simses that both happen to work for two companies that have the same name, and they very well could have the same name because we're talking about you know an entire country of you know 330 million people in 50 different states. There could be two people from A plus Coin Laundry that are that you know Eric Sims, right? That'd be weird, but it's possible. 
So uh, it looks like Mark says he's worked on a problem that's similar to this. So let's hear from Mark. And then also Rodney might have a uh, problem that he's worked on that's similar to this as well. Sounds just like a binomial proportion test. You just take a few random samples and do something like that and then you know have a null hypothesis test and do that way. But Mark, what do you got? Mine's going to sound super scrappy and true startup fashion. But essentially, I had a problem where um, working with EHR data, again, we had like massive big data. So we're using like sparks. I couldn't like just go through everything. It was like millions of rows. But essentially, uh, EHR data sucks. And so when they were uh, classifying the insurance type, they had numerous different types of insurance categories. Um, this may be a little different because you're saying names, so that may have a lot more variability. But essentially what I did was just I negotiated with the stakeholder. I said, this is not going to be perfect, but what you have is utter horrible. This is horrible. So I can get you 80% there, and you just have to accept that that 20% is going to be wrong somehow. Um, and work with them just to say, like, let's just get the ball moving forward, and we can figure it out later. Again, start a pat. Um, so got the negotiation down there so that the stakeholder is okay with that. And from there, I just chose, I just randomly chose 500 rows and just self-labeled it. And so I, I, and it, that could have done something statistically significant, but again, startup, scrappy, just trying to move forward, get process down. I just self-labeled 500 rows um, and self, uh, and it's basically said like, all right, cool. This is like a, a validation set, right? And then I just used regex and some business logic and just created some logic to classify and create some rules. I ran it on, on all of my data, right? And then I ran it on my validation set to, see, to classify and create like a confusion matrix saying like, this is what the insurance classifications are. You know, this is what it looks like. And from there, I was able to go to the stakeholder and said, hey, I ran this on this validation set that I made. My bias is that I labeled it myself, but no one else is going to do it. <laughs> you can go label it if you want, but you don't want to spend money on that. Um, I reduced the nulls to less than 1% and I uh, have accuracy, <laughs> you know, F score, whatever you want to do. Very biased, but like this is what I have. And we have a baseline quantify that's better than before. And so again, it's not perfect, but you create a process to be wrong. You quantify how wrong you are. So now you have a process to be right further later on. Cool. Just very briefly, Eric, think about, okay, yeah, these may be text terms, but that doesn't mean you can't feature engineer. You could put two text terms together. I've done that many times to help me find dirty data and fix it or feature engineer text before I encode it to numbers. We can take it offline, like I said in the uh, chat, but I want to hear from whoever Harper wants to hear from, but I'm also eager to hear from Rodney. Yeah. So let's go to Rodney. If anybody else wants to chime in um, after Rodney, let me know. Eric, I've linked you to something that hopefully is helpful. Uh, it's just a quick little read on sample size for estimating binomial proportion and it different message, methods for doing that. Um, but that's what it sounds like you might have. Uh, Rodney, let's hear from you. Then after Rodney, we will go to Jacob's question on data engineering, uh, which I will uh, hand that one over to uh, Ben and Matt if they are still around. Ben is here. At for Rodney. Yeah, so uh, Harpreet, it's just like you said, it's just a test of proportions, right? So, uh, and the question is, how large a sample size do you need in order to be able to test whether the proportion of successes or failures, whichever way you want to look at it, equals a particular hypothesized proportion? So there's basically two ways to do this. You can use the Z-score formula for the test of proportions, which is basically 
the difference between some estimated proportion and the hypothesis proportion divided by the square root of the product of the hypothesized proportion times one minus the hypothesized proportion divided by n, which is going to be your sample size. I love that, by the way, you just like crank that. It's like, I'm just going to like throw that, throw that uh, formula out off the top of my head. Right. Right. And then what then what you do is so the the, the uh, numerator of that is basically uh, is basically your error. Right. So what you do is you set a tolerance on the error uh, and then you you rearrange that for a given tolerance to back out n. Right. The, the, the sample size. And so that's okay. one way of doing it. And then the exactly. second way you do it from a statistical perspective is is you basically look at the power that you need uh, to be able to test the hypothesis with, say, 80% power. Okay. Um, and, and there's usually, uh, so I'm, I'm not sure about tools in, say, Python for this. Um, I'm pretty sure there are, but uh, I'm, I'm not super familiar with them. But there's numerous uh, tools for computing power available in something like R, for example. So okay. it, cool. it's, a, yeah. it's a relatively well-known problem in statistics i think yeah and it's like as you're you're talking about it's like oh yes of course i've like i've like heard these things and learned them but like i don't have to do this particular thing on a daily basis in my mm. job and so i'm like well good thing i got a question for friday mm. thank you so, yeah, yeah so just to, to clarify it sounds like you have like a, a small set of data and you're just trying to make this inference saying okay like the larger data that is out there that i've yet to look at I think that the proportion of whatever it is that I'm looking at is less than some certain threshold. That's yeah. what it sounds like trying to do. And yeah. The question yeah. is how yeah. big a sample size you yeah. need, right? yep. which is precisely, I think, what Eric asked. So, yep. yeah. 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 And that's, and that's perfect. The other thing is like, I mean, I could like, you know, I mean, just, you know, business hat and the time I had, it's like, I can, I don't necessarily have to go through and calculate the right sample size, do every, every single little thing, like good enough was good enough for it. But it just made me think like, well, what if I was dealing with 10 million rows rather than you know, 10,000? And what am I, what am I going to do? And just trying to think through that because, you know, next week I could be dealing with that instead. And so just trying to be proactive about it, staying sharp. Yeah. So here, I'll give you a link to this thing. It makes it super easy. You just plug and chug. It's, it's really easy. Um, so you don't have to do it. In, in exactly. That's that. it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right, cool. Let's Thank keep you. it moving. Uh, Jacob got a question about data engineering. Well, it's a good thing we got some data engineers in the building. Uh, yeah. Uh, good evening, everyone. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I'm trying to learn um, data engineering. So I saw um, Google um, Cloud uh, course and AWS. So I'm a bit confused. I don't know which of them to take. And I uh, also wanted to know if it's um, necessary to have like, um, uh, trying to remember. Uh, oh. Okay, something that has to do with uh, a software development lifecycle, if it's necessary to have that as um, a data engineer as well. Those are my questions. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Benjamin, go for it, my friend. Good to, good to have you back and good, good, to, good to hear from you, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I know I just drop off like that. But um, yeah, just to give you kind of my perspective on it, I, I think to start out with when you, you're looking for like whether you go AWS, Google and, and so forth, I think usually I would say focus more general first, like in terms of like, understand, like if you are, if you don't already stand like data engineering as a concept, I would focus more on, on those uh, processes first, like understanding like streaming, batch ETLs, um, things of that nature, um, data warehousing, cloud data warehousing, kind of the differences um, first, because uh, specializing, I think can maybe wrap like one pigeonhole you a little bit, but also 
like any of those things like Google certificate, I've looked at it. Um, it's very much geared towards Google, right? Like it's like, that's what it is. You're not going to learn, I think, how to be a data engineer. You're going to learn how to work with Google products. Um, and uh, I haven't looked at, I don't think I've seen AWS's. I've seen like Azure's, but I think it's a similar story. Um, and I think it's more important to be general. And then hopefully you can apply those skills with the different tools that they provide because they all have kind of um, similar tools across their space. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, I think it's better to kind of, you know, learn the general school uh, skill sets, ETLs, data pipelines, ELTs, things of that nature, and then apply that towards specific tools. Um, that's just generally like how I feel about that. And then what was the second part of that question? There's one other part now I'm spacing on. Um, I'm talking about um, um, data engine, um, uh, software. Um, oh yeah. Sorry. Um, life cycle about um, yeah um, software development. Yeah, no, I, I would say you know there's there's a lot of aspects that I think you know um, applying the same similar principles like software development life cycle to um, is valuable in data engineering. There's a lot of programming involved in in data engineering, and even if you're not doing a lot of programming, there's often a lot of like SQL logic that you know I think benefits from similar um, like mentalities and and principles. So I would I would say yeah, you you very much I think need to apply a lot of similar concepts. In fact. Even when it comes to like dashboarding, I think like even there has some some benefits that you can apply and treat it more like software and not just like like an ad hoc thing. Um, I, I think that's the big thing about data engineering is like we're building infrastructure that's meant to last for, you know, hopefully a long time and not just doing an analysis that will, you know, disappear after, you know, it, it after it's mainly done. So it is much more like software in that way. Uh, even if you're doing more like I think low code solutions, I think it still benefits from having similar testing, similar lifecycle process. Um, because again, it needs to be around for a long time. It's not just meant to be built and then destroyed or built and looked at and then you know not looked at again. So I think it, it is important to, uh, it's an important aspect of the work that we do. All right, thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, Matt Sharp. Um, yeah, so I guess for the first point, you know, whenever anyone asks, you know, like, you know, what tools you should use, uh, usually my recommendation is you should figure out what company you want to work for, figure out what rule or tools they use and learn those. Um, just because, you know, does it, you know, AWS or Google or, you know, Azure, whatever, like they all pretty much have similar ecosystems and, you know, the code you end up writing is all very similar, but just slightly different. And so, you know, just learning one of them will make all the skills transferable. You know, it's it's similar like, you know, learning a programming language. Should you learn Python, R, Ruby, C++, et cetera? Like, you know, usually the best answer is if you know where you want to go, you know, choose the right tools that'll make you stand out to go work for that certain company. And I guess the second part of that question is, um, like, I, I think it's a really good idea to learn the software cycle. Um, uh, from my experience, I think for data engineer, so like, as far as I know, there's no, there's no colleges that offer a data engineering degree. Like it's just such a new field. You know, I think data engineers only really came around as a title like seven years ago. Um, I mean, it, really it's even newer than data science, but I think from my perspective, often it's, it's easier to take like a software engineer and teach them data than it is to take a data scientist and teach them engineering. And so, uh, I mean, generally you're gonna do one of the two to create a data engineer, but um, I, I just think a lot of the engineering aspects are a little bit more rigorous and maybe a little less fun. And so 
uh, <laughs> and, and so it's just a, a matter of kind of yeah, learning that software engineering cycle is is very useful. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, anybody else want to chime in on this? Mahigo, I know you might have some thoughts. I see in the chat here, but I'm not sure if it's a related question or... I'm going to agree. As a data scientist that went over to the engineering side, it is a very, very hard hill to climb. Very hard. Um, but I think it's worthwhile just depending on your incentives. Like, you know, I worked as a data scientist for a few years and I got to the point where I was basically, I had a fork in the road. I could continue being like a very mediocre data scientist, if I would be really honest. Or, um, and mediocre because I just didn't have that love of like innovation and to like go research questions and kind of be okay with like, okay, well, you know, 80% of research projects failing. Like I just wasn't down with that. Uh, so I chose the engineering side, but, you know, I'm going to agree with Matt. It's, it is a lot more rigorous. Um, so for example, just taking a very, <laughs> very simple workflow of like, we want to create a Python package and like, you know get it productionized and secure, right? You have to deal with everything from like, oh, like what cloud storage bucket do you create and destroy? Like the IAM permissions, like all this other stuff. So like security permissions, pipelining, robustness, what happens if like predictions go down, all this nonsense. So, you know, I think that's just like something to consider. Um, yeah, it's definitely like learn principles and concepts. Um, and then sort of, I would say like, don't go after, if you do kind of like chase after one of the solution providers and that's the kind of keyword is like managed services for everything. Um, I would say pick one and then sort of stick with it and kind of like learn the concepts just because like GCP and AWS, they do have some kind of like similar offerings and a lot of employers, um, they'll say like you, you know, if you look at the job description, they'll say like familiarity with one of GCP, AWS, Azure, duh. But essentially, for a lot of company, companies, once they, you know, adopt a provider, they will just kind of stick with it because it is very, very expensive to like move in between GCP and AWS and Azure. So, you know, that's just kind of like, I think, I think Matt and Benjamin uh, being the experts in this area, I think they totally nailed all those points and just, you know, personal experience wise, it is a very, 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 very hard move, which, you know, make sure you're very informed as to kind of, you know, what are the skills and the experiences you need to have and make sure you appropriately kind of set up your learning and upskilling path because there's a lot of rabbit holes that you could just kind of like get lost in and you you don't really want that so awesome makiko thank you so much appreciate that uh let's go to dipashu's question i think dipashu do you have any uh yeah hopefully you guys can hear me yeah absolutely clear man good to see you how you doing i'm doing good man um my question is tailored specifically for ken when and you herpit um and it's centered around content creation because um, I believe you guys have skin in the game and have like significant experience like building and understanding your brand. Um, I just have a couple of questions in terms of content creation. So I see this, this uptake, this upward trend in uh, like viewership and engagement for social media platforms just in times of COVID. And I was wondering like, what do you guys think if this trend is going to continue for the long term? Or do you think like as we go back to normalcy and as spaces, public spaces and offices start to open up, uh, are we going to see like a natural decline or decrease in this in this viewership? Like for someone like who's contemplating um, coming up, creating their own content and coming up with their own thing. Um, I was curious, like, what do you guys think of this trend? Uh, so that's number one. And just wait really quickly. Um, I was also wondering, and I'm curious to know, like for all four of you, like what is what is this process like 
on like a day to day basis like do you do you plan and schedule your content a week or a month ahead or is it like a day to day engagement where like it's driven by uh, what problems or what questions people are coming up coming to you for so just like what do you think about the trend and the process of content creation yeah definitely i'm excited to hear what uh, what everybody has to say on this um i'll i'll just say that i think that when it comes to content creation you have to think about the effect of the long tail right um and the more that you can niche down and really hone in on the things that you are interested in that that you can truly be authentic speaking on and and creating content for there's always going to be an audience out there for you will it be 10 million people will it be 100 and how many 40 something thousand 50 something thousand youtube uh, subscribers uh, or, or will it be 75,000 downloads on a podcast that's had hundreds of episodes i don't know right but the internet makes this possible right that there is always going to be some niche that you can serve that will still allow you to create content that you love while being authentic to yourself and doing something unique and original um that the internet just makes that possible right the long tail is a thing um i had another point that'll probably come to me later and i'll interject yeah that's a great but i want to add a third question to that so what do you guys think is like the top five or the the most like um talked about topics or like in terms of content creation what are the topics that you feel hasn't been given that much attention or there is scope um in in this in this space of data science and ai yeah that's a that's a good question i don't have a readily available answer to that i mean i think one thing for sure maybe is we we just had an hour long discussion on ethics i don't see many people posting about that or talking about that and i feel like um maybe maybe it's something i'm not actively seeking out at the moment but i just don't see any of that in my feed popping up and and things like that right um yeah thanks for that man but I mean, Perhaps. you know, ML ops and, you know, just intersections, right? But I mean, the thing is, like, instead of addressing the five things that you, you know, why don't you go in and say, okay, what are things that people aren't talking about that I could talk about that I can say something valuable and contribute something to discussion and then let me go talk about it, right? No one's going to listen. Sounds like a, a great blog post to me, the five things that people aren't talking about enough yeah. in the data science space, right? Yeah, like it's, exactly. it's thinking about those things. Because if you're having those questions, other people are also going to be having those questions. And uh, something that that uh, I've always lived by is the things that interesting uh, that I find interesting are the things that I want to create content about. If I'm finding these interesting, if I'm reading all of the, the other things, I'm listening to, or following all the incredible creators that are in the space in this even specific Zoom, there's going to be something that I want to dive into further, that I want to add more context in, that I want to give my experience on. And that's going to be something that inevitably someone, I, I would imagine I'm not the only in any scenario, would also be interested in. In terms of right. growth, in, in terms of, of the landscape, um, there's so many forces at play. You know, I look at like trends in the terms data science, machine learning, AI, they fluctuate almost on a day-to-day -day basis. And my viewership, whatever it is, uh, does correlate pretty heavily with those things. And so to me, it's like, as long as this field is continuing to grow the after effects of people you know maybe like doing a lot of learning at home or whatever it might be that might pay, that might be a part of it but i expect that there's going to be a, a continued growth in content in this space regardless i mean you look at medium for example there's some really good articles but it's like overflowing with yeah. so much content now to speak right. of. and right. i, I I really think that if you're producing good things and you're creating value and you're sharing it with community, 
um, and you're engaging in the community, that's one of the key things. That's what helps to, to establish you or to help you to, to grow if you want to go down more of a content creator path. Um, right. To, to me, there's so much value in uh, like sharing what other people are doing. I find it fascinating. Why wouldn't I want to uh, share what my friends are working on or whatever it might be? And that's how you grow. That's, it's not about what you create or the, or the other things. It's how you, how you find your place in the broader community and the value you can, you can provide and pervade across the whole thing. Um, I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but, uh, but that's, that's really <laughs> interesting, Ken. But, and it makes me think of like um, in terms of motivation as well. Like, what what is like what are the primary motivations that you guys have? Like, is it is it like financial independence or like community building or cloud or is it like a mixture of all those things? Like in terms of all what cloud. drives you? No, <laughs> no I well, so yeah. it, I, I think I've been pretty vocal about this. Is that for example, I started making YouTube videos because I enjoyed making them. Like I, I really enjoyed that process. And I would have never thought that so many people would have watched them by now, right? Like that blows my mind every day. Um, and I did that because I love that process and it helped me to learn. It helped me selfishly to improve my ability to speak and to convey information. I think that that's mm-hmm. something that's really important. And, you know, selfishly, I have the podcast, which is continuing to grow. And I talk to incredibly intelligent people like bi-weekly and I get to ask them questions that I'm fascinated in. I get to learn and I get to push my learning forward through these mediums. And the beautiful thing is I get to share the learnings that I have with everyone else who's tuning in. So this selfish pursuit or somewhat selfish pursuit of information on my end leads to broader information and sharing throughout a larger community. And I think that, that I don't know if that's the motivation for everyone. I think obviously I've, I've made some, a reasonable income. I've, gained more financial independence, I've gained a following. But to me, it's always been about that pursuit of, of, of like knowledge and interest. And like, the more people you have following you, the more like interest you have, the more like different uh, questions you get, the more information you have to process, the more different di- directions your brain can go to, to uncover new questions that you might not have previously thought of on your own. So it's this, it's the development of this beautiful ecosystem that at least for me, makes me keep wanting to do it and keep diving in further. Yeah, man. I absolutely love yeah. that. Uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd also say, like, to Ken's point, the best way to learn something is by teaching it. If there's something that yeah. I don't understand, okay, I'm just going to teach it, right? Like, okay, I kind of need to get good at deep learning, um, especially with the new job, and I don't know much about it. So let me create 21 days of deep learning and just do that and hold myself accountable to the entire public uh, that I'm going to learn this thing and I'm going to share that journey with you guys. Um, and I mean, in terms of motivation, why I do this, dude, like, uh, let me just let's see how far I can push the boundaries. How big could I get this thing? How, how, who can I get on that? I've, that, you know, people say that I can't like, are you crazy going after that guy? Let me just try it. Right. Cause I'm trying to be yeah. like, the, I'm trying to be Joe Rogan. That's my competition. Right. Like, I mean, nice. not, not these other, That's a good podcasts. I mean, John Crone, you my homie, I'm a good friend, but I'm not competing with you, my friend, uh, super data science, great podcast, but, uh, you know, people with Joe Rogan, Tom Bill, you, uh, James Altucher, you know, that that's what I'm envisioning. I'm just seeing if can I get that big, can I push it there? Can I do something that massive? Um, let's go to uh, Benjamin. Yeah, no, I just, I guess, wanted to poke in a little bit as, I mean, uh, somewhat of a content creator, at least on YouTube more recently, but on Medium now, it feels like forever. I think it's like three or four years. Um, I think what's what's like interesting, like as you're trying to like niche down and things of that nature, I think one thing, because I think Ken brought this up earlier, like, you know, there's like so many articles. I don't know how many articles are posted per day on Medium, but it's 
you know, ridiculous number. I think Medium has done something similar in terms of like how the like very like what do you call it? Uh, digital cameras on phones have also taught us something ver- like very important, which is we all suck at taking pictures. And if you're able to take very good pictures and which is a very hard skill to get you, you know, it's a very valued skill in the same way. There's a ton of people producing content, but producing content is such a hard skill to really get good at and like to find a niche in that if you can do it well, I think you're going to stick out. Um, I think that's always something I always think about. It's like, okay, how do I just, you know, if I just keep putting out good content, you know, I'll stick out and all the other content that maybe is not as good. will just make my content look better. (laughs) And I put out terrible content too all the time. Um, you, YouTube loves letting me know that when it's like, oh, this video is doing a nine out of 10 compared to your last videos. It's like, okay, well, just going to stop making videos. No, but um, yeah, that's, that's generally, I think like my, my view of it um, as far as planning, I know I should be do, like do a much better job at like content planning. Um, I, I like try to like make these plans like, oh, I'm gonna make these videos. And then, you know, between um, working full time and consulting, it's like, okay, well now I got to ditch these videos and focus on that. But um, yeah, I think, I think content planning would be very helpful just in terms of like long-term strategy. I think that's definitely something I would like to pick up more. That's like, like doing things like the 21 days of deep learning things like that would be, I think a, a good, good habit to start building. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I missed that, that second part there in terms of content planning. There's, I guess I could talk about content planning in two ways. There's planning in terms of planning what I'm posting. So I use Canva for that and I'll just post on, on Canva and, um, uh, like, I mean, schedule out posts and stuff like that in terms of actual ideas. I've got an idea journal right here. Um, I just write ideas of things I want to create and just do that. Um, and then in terms of when it happens, like, I'll just like, if I'm just inspired in the moment, like, all right, I'm just going to do this and just create a ton of content. Like I've got more content than, than I know how to release these little infographics and things like that. Like I've got so much stuff. It's ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, my new strategy is going to be okay. I'm just pushing only, um, stuff from the podcast from my from my podcast page instead of my personal page just because i'm gonna do something crazy i'm gonna do 168 hours of content that's what i got planned that's what i gotta schedule out uh, this weekend is one piece of content every hour for 168 hours which is number of hours in a week and uh do that entirely through my uh through my artist data science page um let's go to ken and mark then vivian yeah i just wanted to highlight something that uh that ben said i you know Ben, I don't think we've actually met in person yet uh, or, or like face to face, but we, we've exchanged some emails, excited to talk more to you. But um, you don't necessarily have to stand out uh, because of the topic area. You can stand out by having a different take. Let's say it's like, a, you know, one of the one of the ways I differentiated my YouTube channel from the onset is that I made what I thought to be more cinematic videos around data science concepts. They're incredible creators, um, you know, like uh, like Krishnak. Uh, code basics and and quite a few others that are doing similar things and they're competing in different ways. So Krishnak produces a video every single day, right? I knew I could not do that. I knew that I could could, could not create a niche for myself based on volume. Uh, and I thought, okay, if 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 it was pure subject area knowledge, like I think I'm a decent data scientist, but it's not like I'm an like an absurd expert in any of these specific niches. So why not leverage some creativity? Why not use uh, like some stupid comedy or what I believe to be funny to make these more interesting or, or go on some of these different themes. Um, and then the last thing is another guy who, who I really look up to a good friend of mine, uh, the data professor, he creates these beautiful hand-drawn infographics and he shares them, right? That's not something I've really seen too many people do. And that's helped him aside from his channel, 
could really grow and expand beyond what he was doing before. And so I think just framing the information in a different way, making it more digestible, even if it's the same stuff and giving credit to people who, oh, by then, uh, who are, um, who are, are doing similar things, like that also creates value. And if you can bring in a, another additional skill set, great. If you can look at it or share it in a different way, um, I have nothing to add on the organization. I like plan my podcast episodes. I just like make videos. I have a schedule where I do one a week. I have this huge list that I go through and I do some polling. I, I need to get better at the systemization of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks Mark, for that, Ken. That really resonates. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm by no means no big name like, like uh, Ken and Harpreet, but definitely. No, I follow play, you. I follow I, you as well. I follow you as well. I follow most of the people, if not all, on this panel. I've oh. been in the dark too long. I still feel small and I like, I like, have, like the small mentality. Um, but the thing is, like, I'm, I'm growing. Um, and, and like, I like that aspect of like, it's the hustle component. Uh, for me, the, the key driver for, for doing this is like, is it fun? Um, am I creating content that's fun for me? Because uh, I, I recently did a whole analysis on my, on my LinkedIn post and its engagement. And I actually tried a whole like specific content strategy and it bombed completely. <laughs> and it showed up in my data, like all my views and engagements just dropped because just the strategy didn't work. But I kept with it because I, I think at that point I could have just gave up. It was like, this isn't working for me more. I don't have the same views, but because it was so fun just to create content, it's, I, I kept on going and now my numbers are going back up. And so I think that's the key thing is like, can you create content that's fun? Because if you're trying to write for other people and it doesn't align with being fun, it's going to show up in your content. It's going to suck um, right. on all ends, right? Um, I think that's right. what happened with my, my campaign. I was writing on things I wasn't having fun with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other the other aspect is consistency. So I, I when I first started, I was going like uh, twice a week, just doing it consistently. And now I, I post every single weekday. And now it's just a habit where if I don't post in the day, something feels off. And I just need to get, I just need to get a thought out there. Um, and then the the other aspect that I really care about now is like I pulled this page from Gary V, who I think is just really good at being a content creator. Hate him or love him. I, I personally love him. But essentially you create key content. So like um, so like you have your podcast or your videos. For me, I'm trying to make my key content being like Python tutorials. Uh, for like how how to do like an analysis and, and data science, and I essentially like break my content either like a burn a burn up to that. So like I'll post about my process and then release finally and build up momentum around it, or I'll do like a podcast or a live stream with someone, and then I have that content. I ask them that I have permission to use it, and now I can break that up in different pieces and share that later on. And so you get these large pieces of content and you break it into smaller ones and just have consistency day in and day out. And what I've noticed is that now with the consistency, earlier I was getting maybe like 10 followers a week, 50. And now I get like 150 followers a week and it's going to grow, hopefully. And so that's that's the main thing. Have fun, do it consistently, build cool projects or, or main pieces of content and break it apart to, to scatter around. Got it. So just consistently posting things that you love and you can talk about um, in some fashion. Yeah. Thank and then, so oh, that, that, was, that was another thing is like also... Uh, find your niche. So uh, I think, I think, uh, and I, I'm curious how others think, but I don't think it's right. Like finding the right topic to talk about is that right. you create your community around mm. a topic they care about. 
And so you choose the topic that it is and you, and you find, instead of finding the right topic, you find the right community to build around that. Got it. Uh, Vivian, go for it. Um, I guess that I was thinking about um, how I get these questions from people a lot of like, and we've all talked about this of like, how do I get started? Like, how did you like do this? And so I'm not some big content creator, but I feel like this applies to this kind of principle applies to anything is like that you just start like, and it's okay to just start and like make kind of crappy things at first. And like, that's fine. Like you just do it. Like the, I'm, I'm convinced that the biggest difference between like me being, you know, employed as a data scientist and somebody who's just starting out is that I just, it's time. Like that I just like put in a certain amount of time and like, sure, like natural ability and talent and things like that can come into it. But like 80% of it is just like putting in time and like learning step-by-step, step, you know, and this idea of like, finding your niche and, you know, and the way that you plan content creation, like those are all like great things. Like I'm not trying to, you know, dismiss anybody saying that like they're great ideas and great things, but if you're not like first just putting in time and like just doing it, like that's going to be what gets you 80% there. And then trying to like do these things to like find a niche or find, you know, how many times should it be posting? Like if I include certain keywords, if I do this or that, like that's like the 20% of like tweaking to try to like increase your performance up at the top, you know, but really what will get you 80% there is just to do it, to start, to put in that time. And like the rest of the path will reveal itself like as you go on. Yeah. Thanks for that point. I, mean, I, I usually like overthink a lot to the point of like teaching perfection before even posting anything, like even as a two-liner uh, post, I just, I I think, yeah, maybe I'll have to change that thought process to like, doesn't matter as long as you're like consistently posting or something. And maybe maybe I can try to abstractly connect Vivian's idea with something Ken put in the chat here. Um, I mean, be a niche of one, right? So instead of trying to say, find your niche, just be your own niche. My niche is just being Harpreet Sahota because nobody can compete with me on being me. Impossible for anyone to try to do, uh, which is related to what Ken is saying here. Uh, it's more stable to build a niche around how you talk about topics compared to specific topics. And if I can quote Naval Ravikant here when he's talking about uh, becoming the best in the world and specific knowledge, he says, when you're searching for what to do, and in this case, the what to do here is content creation, you have two different foci you want to keep in mind at all points in time. One is you want to be the best at what you do. And next is what you do is flexible so that you become the best at it. Right. And then you get to a place where you're comfortable, a very comfortable place where you're like, yes, this is something I could be amazing at, still be authentic to who I am. And it's not like an overnight discovery or anything. You, it's a journey. You just create, 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 keep creating. And I mean, I still haven't figured my shit out yet. Like, I don't, I don't, like, you know, like, I mean, Dan's got his. Like, like who, like his personality no, figured, figured out, out right? No, he's not figured out yet. Huh? You guys have skin no. the game. Well, for sure. what, one last thing I'd like to say is, you know, from like the content creation part of my brain, not my like full-time work or any of the other stuff, like what is the goal of, of creating information online, right? It's to create value, but it's also to get to a place where people listen because it's you saying it, not mm. necessarily because of what you're saying. And like, you get to that point because what you're saying creates value. But I would love to be able to a place to be in a place where one day I could make any video that I wanted that was as interesting as possible to me. And people would be interested in it because right. I created it. Right. That that right. is like the I, the personal branding mecca. And I think that, that that 
carry some challenges with it, right? Like you, it's hard to differentiate your life, your personal life with your public life in some of those senses. But, but like, if I was getting paid to, to do whatever I wanted to do and create whatever I wanted to create every single day, that to me seems like a pretty incredible existence because you're, you're like living what you, what you believe and you want to create. And so I would start thinking about it as like, what would I like to be making every day? What would I like to be producing every day? And if you start doing that and you start growing because of it, um, you're going to be really motivated to do that, to, to continue to make it. And you're also going to be able to create a beautiful following that likes you for your value, but also likes you for the very unique and individual things that you bring. They like you right. for, for, bring, for bring Harpreet, right? They like me for being Ken and the little weird idiosyncrasies that we, that we both can occasionally bring. Yeah, and I love papayas as well. Yeah, speaking of uh, papayas, somebody commented here on LinkedIn. I enjoyed Ken's papaya Q&A. None of the other data tubers that I follow do things like that. That was being authentic to himself. <laughs> Greg, you had your uh, you had your hand up as well, Greg. Let's hear from you, man. I haven't heard, I barely heard from you today, my friend. How you been? No, I was going to say uh, to Dipancho, at the end of the day, it's about you projecting yourself into, I guess, the, the, the future and kind of kind of looking back, asking yourself, you know, how, how did I get there? Or how do I want to get there, right? So if you see yourself as, someone who's um, knowledgeable in a certain subject, whatever that subject is, um, what the internet has allowed us to do, what, as Ken was saying, is to, to talk about it and to, you know, showcase our journey or talk about our journey. I think people gain followers because they can relate, right? They can relate somehow, whether they're also experiencing the same thing or they would like to adventure in the same thing. So that's what I describe as a, a follower, right? If you think about um, the biggest soccer superstar right now as followers, not because, you know, they think they can be soccer superstars too, which is Ronaldo, by the way, from uh, Portugal. Uh, you know, it, it's because they, 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 they relate to where it comes from, right? So they, uh, so R R Ronaldo uh, from, from Portugal, Portugal, uh, Mikiko, he's uh, probably the most followed soccer star in uh, uh, on Instagram, and you know, it it's it's all about you know creating transparency about your journey, and that's what makes the internet so so beautiful. And you're you're being vulnerable by sharing what you learn along your path, and you're consistently doing so. And with time, it builds up, it creates this flywheel where more and more people will take notice into your progress. And even though people may not relate to what you're trying to achieve, but they relate to you making progress that will that may give them motivation to do their own uh, thing or to hop on their own journey, right? So there are always, there's always a benefit to, to, to that. So the most important thing is, and I think people said it already, is to start. As, as Vivian said, start somewhere and then uh, keep going. Uh, if I could give a confession here, I don't consider myself a content creator on LinkedIn. To me, a content creator is the the heartbreak, the kin, the Tom, you know, of the world who have like this 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 mechanism, like whether it's on YouTube or this platform, uh, or the the podcast and things like that. Uh, for me, I'm a, I'm a vehicle, and I do it with a purpose. I like to connect with people who know stuff who know things. And with that, I like to bring my special set of skills or knowledge to make sure they, I help them uh, uh, achieve something, right? So I, I'm a connector. I've always been good at that. And um, by 
tapping into quality pipeline of you know things that is go- that are going on. I just selected one um, subject, which is AI realm, which is huge. And I just talk about things in my way of understanding it. And with that, people come to me to ask for ideas um, and I help them along the way. So my end point is to um, talk to a lot of startup founders and help them along that journey. Uh, Another end point that I have personally is to enhance my brand where uh, I can feel the freedom to uh, put a price on my head for either consultation from a business, from a person who's from the business, uh, or put a price on my head in terms of uh, getting hired by anyone, right? So uh, again, it's, it's going to be depending on what you want to do uh, or, or to what level you want to become a content creator. Somebody who posts on a daily basis like myself on LinkedIn, you want to call that a content creator? Yeah, I can't. I, I, I don't know. I don't see myself as a content creator. I'm just a vehicle, uh, a, a spreader of news. Uh, or a spread of news in my own way of understanding it. Uh, but I know it does generate value. I'm not saying I'm not creating value. I know it does. Like some people find it valuable. Uh, uh, but, but you know, it's up to you to, to, to deep dive. Do you want to be the, the person who does it well through medium? Go for it. If you want to do it uh, with YouTube, go for it. But at the end of the day, uh, you have to have the will to keep going. You have to have the will to, to know that it doesn't, you don't find success at, at day one, right? You have to keep going. So your first YouTube videos will suck or your your next hundred videos will suck. And then next thing you know, that one trigger will send you to the moon and people will constantly go back to the older videos because they know, hey, this guy has been producing for so long. So at the end of the day, it's it's what you do on a daily basis that will pile up to uh, uh, that, that that compounding effect. So, so um, there's, there's no good way, bad way of doing it. So just start. So hey, Greg. Greg, Greg claims to not be a content creator on LinkedIn. So I spotlight everyone here. Look on the bottom right. That's the LinkedIn Top Voice Award. That he has. <laughs> 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 uh, so I don't, I don't know. Greg, do you aspire to be a content creator though? <laughs> do you aspire to be? If you're not. I do. I, do. I had a... Um, I think I think Kenji, you you did invite me to your podcast, right? And we talked about that. I don't know if you remember Kenji, but oh, I remember. I how, when you're ready, I know I know you're waiting for me. I need I need to come to you for that. I, I haven't had the courage to start. So I told Ken during during that podcast, right, that I, I want to start this uh, YouTube channel that where I invite startups to discuss. So to to answer your question, long story short, is yes, I I, I want to do so. Um, Time is my biggest enemy. It's a matter of really understanding what I want to do uh, and, and also doing something that nobody else is doing uh, out there. So I want to make sure I understand what, what it means. Uh, will every startup founders want to be uh, present in my podcast to talk about their secret sauce? I highly doubt it, right? Because of the, the landscape, right? They have to protect their, their secret sauce. So I'm still munching on that. So I, I still have you in my mind, Ken. So uh, uh, hang tight for that. So. He's my um, go-to mentor for starting a good YouTube channel. So let's hear from uh, Matt Diamond here. And then after Matt Diamond, Ken's got an interesting question. And then after Ken's question, yeah. we will uh, wrap it up. Go for it, Matt. Yeah, hey, yeah it's just a, a question along the lines of what, what Greg was saying. Is there any motivation that that you change when you're putting content out there? Like, what's is there a line between authenticity and palatability? Like, will, will you change how something is described to make it resonate with a wider audience, 
or is that not even a consideration when putting a video or a post out there? Or am I just overcomplicating this? Uh, absolutely, you, you're right. So, so my purpose is to simplify it in, in my own layman term is to, you know, take something that may have taken me, you know, an hour to read uh, and to quickly summarize it in the first top three lines on the LinkedIn post that would make somebody want to know more or at least make a, a short summary on a LinkedIn post that somebody may not need to open the appended doc to deep dive. Or if they're interested more, they have a pretty good idea of what's in there based on my understanding of the content. And when with that, some people may come in and say, your summary sucks or your summary helped. Regardless, I learn from that and I get better. At the end of the day, I help myself uh, to better communicate, to read faster. I help myself to better, you know, write summaries, et cetera, et cetera, because I'm aware that people don't have time and there's so much content out there that you need a, a, an optimal way of consuming these things and even filtering out the things that are not necessary. So you're absolutely right. I do it with a purpose of putting my own spin. If it's not my own spin, I always make sure I, I quote it uh, because it helps me a lot. And I, or, or ahead of time, I will ask somebody, Hey, I like that. Do you want me to, can I do me, give me permission to share that with the audience? Uh, and, and I know I've done that with a couple of people in this audience right now who, who yeah, create good content that I'm just passing on to the bigger audience. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. I do, when the, I follow data people, not anybody here. I, I mean that I feel like there's just a bunch of little dopamine nuggets that, that are nice in the moment, but they can't be contextualized for the problem or the issue that I'm, I'm really deeply engaged with at the time. So great stuff like that. It's super helpful. Awesome. Awesome. Right on guys. Excellent. Excellent discussion. Deepashu, thank you very much. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this uh, gets you going, man. Let's see some, see some stuff come from you. Uh, Ken, go for it. Yeah. So I have one last kind of fun question to end on. Um, and so that is, it's completely hypothetical. But if a data scientist were to be a protagonist in a movie, what genre would that movie have to be in order for you to be willing to watch it? I mean, we have like drama, we have mystery, we have horror, thriller, whatever it is. So, uh, so that's a, I guess, mystery genre. Go ahead, Greg. Mystery genre. Mikiko, go first. I'll, I'll play the lead. I would let Mikiko go. Mikiko, you had the your, your hand. Uh, Chat's also fine for this one. Hey, sorry guys, I was eating. And also I was listening to all of you because I don't like listening to myself sometimes. Uh, actually, though, the longer, so my earliest like kind of connecting with data science was actually the show Numbers. So it's a, it was a crime murder mystery and it was on CBS, I think, for like seven seasons. And what was great was essentially it was like this older brother is a police officer. The younger brother is like, you know, the smarty pants who at like age eight or 10 or whatever got his PhD and something along the lines. And he would provide all these different little, uh, like obviously each show was like solving a crime based off of like a principle. But then Wolfram Mathematica at the time had provided like a website that would show you demos of each of the simulations. So I'm like, and I feel like if I see a data scientist in something like, I don't know, like the Hallmark Channel or something on a romance, I'd be horribly disappointed because let's be honest with them. It would be them coming up with a spreadsheet Going like, okay, like, let me see if I can input like all my sort of wants and, and like score them and then coming up with a bunch of fake profiles and then like catfishing people to see how they could better like tailor the content, which someone actually did write a book on. So that happened in real life. So yeah, 
crime murder mysteries. That would be my jam. What book was that? Oh my God. Um, I don't remember, but it was basically, it was pink and it was like love and numbers or something. And it was by this like author who is a professor of presumably uh, either political science or something like that. So basically she was like, oh, I'll just use numbers to solve this because she's like, realistically, how many eligible uh, also Jew- like, you know, Jewish men of a certain age that are single and willing to mingle, but at the same time are in it for the long haul in New York. So I think it was something along those lines. If, if you look up data numbers, dating, spreadsheet, catfishing. Yeah. Um, yeah, she did a TED Talk on it too. So that was, that was really cool. Yeah, so there's a, I don't know if you guys seen this TV show. Uh, it's Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. Jim from The Office yeah. is in there, Jim Krasinski. But nice name is not Jim Krasinski. I don't know what his actual real name is, but uh, uh, John, John Krasinski. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure he's a data scientist because there's some episodes where he was talking about writing custom SQL queries and making Python. He was a scripts. financial analyst. Yep. Right. Yeah. yeah I saw that. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, uh, before I get to Mark, I just want to chime in on this idea while it's on top of my head. I, I would make it like a romantic comedy. And it would be something like a data scientist who uh, who works at like something like match.com, but gets disenfranchised by the uh, the corporate thing and then goes off and just starts matchmaking himself and doing some interesting stuff. Like something like, like he'd be like Hitch, but like a data scientist and it'd be a rom-com because rom-coms are awesome. I love rom-coms. I was thinking that too, like a, like a bachelor bachelorette and then Ooh. having like the data scientist try to explain what he does and just bore everybody. <laughs> just... <laughs> what do you There's... like to do in your spare time? Create spreadsheets. <laughs> There's actually, oh my... uh, not that I watched the bachelor fun my wife used to make me watch it but there's uh one season when there's actually a data scientist who's describing his job i was like oh he's a data scientist <laughs> it was funny uh tom let's go to you and then let's hear from from mark uh i was just gonna say real quick uh one of my uh wife's friends was trying to explain to others what i do is he's, he's like chandler from friends you can't really know what tom does and i that was the most hilarious explanation out of the but Chandler was a data scientist. His job was statistical analysis and data reconfiguration. He was a data scientist. Mark, let's go to you and then uh, Greg. I was about to say, I think the two options for me is one would be, there's a manga, manga, wherever it is. And specifically that character who's like, I know this exact calculation and for this reason why I stood right here and that's why I'll defeat you. Like all the calculations <laughs> in the head can just defeat you with this logic by itself uh, or like Shikamaru from Naruto, if you're a Naruto fan, right? Uh, the other one on the more grittier side would be uh, a cyberpunk thriller. So essentially corporations have taken over the Facebooks, the Googles, and it's up to our, our fearless data scientists to crack the code and understand the data to stop them from ruining the world. <laughs> man, so so that's good stuff, man. Uh, so Greg is an actual science fiction writer, or you wanted to be a writer. So this is your opportunity, man. Pitch us your plot. I, 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 I'd like to be one one day, right? And uh, and 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 by the way, I I did talk to a couple uh, people who who actually want to automate that, right? The script writing using AI. So I, I've been pretty excited about that, talking to these folks and what they're doing in this industry. So I'm a big fan of sci-fi. So one thing I always think about is this this world where companies are have been taken over by AI, right? They're they're uh telling us, you know, they're creating the balance between supply and demand uh in terms of uh who needs a job, who doesn't, uh controlling whether uh you are fit for uh uh joining a company, which are again the board of directors are just 
you know, AI entities who are kind of telling you uh, what to do uh, and things like that and scoring you whether you qualify. So there's no such thing as an interview or whatever. So, so, and then you have a group of, of, of people who are trying to, to, to fight this system. So I, uh, you know, whether they're data scientists or trying to understand what kind of logic this, this these AI entities who are controlling the, the big things uh, are, are doing to us and how that affects society. So I always think about, about those things. If you follow uh, uh, Prime, there's this show called Electric Dreams. I am hoping they can do season two, but Electric Dreams is a series of each episode isn't connected to the other. So there's a different actor set of actors for each episode. They're their own. They're their, each episode is its own uh, story. And um, it's kind of like um, a twisted so- story, but it's super uh, uh, set in the future. And they're exploring uh, human uh, societal uh, issues. Uh, where, you know, uh, being a terrorist might be seen as a disease or being racist might be seen as a disease and how to surface that, et cetera, et cetera. So it explores a lot. I like those kind of dark, gritty uh, future uh, sci-fi uh, settings right there. Sounds like Black Mirror. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's what I was Black thinking too. Yes, yeah. so, like uh, Black Vivian, Mirror. Vivian says it's a uh, anthology type. Makiko says you can argue that any movie sur- is that any movie about surveillance is basically AI ethics and simulation. I think there's a movie like Eagle Eye with Shia LaBeouf that was all like AI or something like that. Oh yeah, um, that was good. Yeah. Uh, Monica, what kind of movie would you, uh, what, what kind of movie do you envision with the data scientist? Oh, I was just, I was just thinking about the, the romance, the, like the reality TV. Yeah. Show. Uh, <laughs> I Vivian, just think that would be so hilarious. Vivian or Russell, anybody else? No, thank you for entertaining me, everyone. I think, Can I, think I planning on making a web series. Yeah, so that's what Ken's no. next at. Next, <laughs> no, next. I just I just think it's fun to have these high level high level conversations. I uh, I personally like the the sci fi angle, you know, like aliens visit and we have to decode all their signals and whatever it might be. That could be really a really interesting thing and like a perfect use case for like where data scientists I think would probably stand out. Uh, like a cross between you could bring in linguistics, you could bring in like movement patterns and if they f- are anomaly detection a lot of really interesting stuff on did that you, front did you like arrival then i did like arrival, arrival was yes, a good one. quite a bit Ooh, yeah good one for that yeah with the linguistic stuff i don't know how she translated that alien language but it, it was a cool movie for that so yeah, yeah. i agree like a i movie definitely where, agree where a data scientist creates like some type of glasses that allows him to see different possible outcomes from every decision that he makes right so he sees like probability distributions of the future and is able to act accordingly but then it makes a wrong turn and things go crazy i don't know i'm just making shit up off the top of my head um uh that'd be interesting too uh looks like there are no other questions no other movies that people want to see that is uh that's great great wrap up guys thank you so much for joining been over two hours that's awesome man hopefully you guys get a chance to actually tune into the podcast or release an episode today with somebody i think that we all know jonathan tesser he comes by and gives us his testimony um, Jonathan Tester, you guys probably know him from LinkedIn. He's a cool guy. Really, really, uh, really enjoyed speaking to him. So definitely tune into that. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, Tom, I see you're. Oh, I yeah. I just love this uh, whole meeting. And yeah. Ken, you were on fire. And I just wanted to echo, well, all of you were. But when you're posting anything, share because you care. Fill holes. I love that. I think we were all saying basically that. But I think you can't go wrong. And the more you post the more traction you're going to get if you really are sharing because you're caring 
and you're trying to fill holes in the community in a caring way, it, you're going to win. Vivian, go for it. Uh, I just wanted to share my good news that I got a job as a hey. data scientist at, get this, Facebook. Believe oh, it. Nice. <laughs> Congrats, dude. That's awesome. Thank you. I can hardly believe Huge. it, but I'm super excited about it. Dude, so, so excited, man. Congratulations. <laughs> Why'd you wait so long to drop that? Uh, I, because I didn't want to interrupt all these great like movie ideas and all the things that were happening. But man, Vivian, that's so awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, awesome, man. Hey guys, thanks again for tuning in. Great, uh, great discussion today. Uh, hope you guys join us next week. And don't forget to uh, tune in to uh, the podcast. Give it a listen. Also, I'm trying to like up my game on Instagram. So follow me, Data Science Harp. Oh. Try to push fire content. So uh, you know that'd be that'd be great if you guys could uh, hit follow. Guys, take care. Have a great rest of the weekend. Remember, my friends, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.